Well, good morning. Welcome to Solid Rock. If you're new or visiting, we're happy to have you today. We've been spending our time on Sunday mornings over the past couple of months working our way through the book of James, and we're going to continue that series this morning. You know, Eugene Peterson once said that the Bible is a book that reads us even as we read it. He went on to say that it's an uncommon sort of book that requires an uncommon sort of reading, but the Bible is a book that reads us even as we read it. And maybe that's one of the things that makes reading it really uncomfortable at times. I don't know if you've felt that discomfort in reading our scriptures as it reads you. And maybe you're like me, and the text that we come to in James today is one of those that stings a little bit more than others as it reads us. I have this weird gift. I guess if we understand what James is arguing in this passage, it's more like a curse. But either way, I have this ability that if somebody hurls an insult at me or makes a joke at my expense, I have an ability to almost immediately have a comeback or some wisecrack right on the tip of my tongue without much mental effort at all. It's just right there. And it's gotten me into trouble on more than one occasion, especially when I was in high school and college. I think I've matured a little bit since then, although my tongue still gets me in trouble and my inability to control my speech at times still gets the best of me. I think this is especially evident when it comes to my desire for highway justice. Do you know what I'm talking about? I just feel this strong compulsion to communicate with other drivers those thoughts that are immediately and effortlessly filling my mind, just to inform them why what they're doing is insane. I've even had this idea of creating like a window decal that displays text that you have entered so that you can communicate with drivers as you pass them. I know I have a problem. And, and we all understand that communication is an important part of life. It's not practical for us to commit to perpetual silence. But I do think we need to consider if speech plays an important part in our relationships, and if our speech is shaping who we are, we should probably be very careful with the words that we speak. Because they're shaping not only us, but they are shaping others, and they're shaping our relationships as well. About a month ago, Austin led us through the last part of James chapter 1, where James was emphasizing the importance of not only hearing the word, but also doing the word. And right at the beginning of that section, he instructs his audience to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Slow to speak and quick to listen. What we do with our words, our patterns of speech is this important theme that James is developing throughout this book, and it's a theme that he returns to in the section we read from chapter 3 today. So there are clearly going to be ways in which becoming a disciple of Jesus challenges some of those most natural predispositions we have. And I'm convinced that one of the most challenging parts of living as a disciple of Jesus, especially in a world where power and influence and control are indicators of success, one of the most challenging parts of becoming a disciple in a world like that relates to our speech, I think. 
Furthermore, our speech is one of the most significant indicators of whether or not community life is going to move forward in a healthy way. So let's read what James has to say this morning. We're going to pick it up right where we left off last week, where James warned those who would become teachers. So look, accepting a role like teaching is a serious thing because the words we speak have a huge impact on people's lives. Furthermore, we all stumble in many ways, and one of the easiest places to stumble is in our speech. It says if you can control your speech, you could conceivably become perfect. If you could control your speech, you would be able to control your entire being. And then the image he uses to further convey that point is that of a bridle, an image he returns to and continues to develop today in verse 3 where he says this, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So if you could control the tongue, you could bridle the entire body. He says, consider the horse. Now, growing up, I almost always lived in suburban areas, but my grandfather lived in southwest Missouri, actually not far from here, and he raised horses and other livestock. So even though I never lived on a farm or a ranch, I still had some contact with horses during my summertime visits to McDonald County, Missouri. Now I still, I don't want to lead you astray, I still know nothing about horses, but I do know enough to understand this image a little bit. I do know that a bit for a horse is that piece of metal or some other synthetic material that goes in the mouth of the horse, it's held in place by a bridle that wraps around the horse's face and then is attached to reins that the rider holds in his or her hands. And this process is used to control the horse. Now, I think this image is maybe even more effective if we think of a young child riding a horse and compare the tiny size and the weakness of that child to the enormity and the power of a horse. And yet, even a small child can direct and, in essence, control that powerful animal. It's really quite remarkable to think about. Well, verse 4 develops this idea a little further, where he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. The second illustration he uses, that of a ship. Now, I think it's important to note that both of these images, the image of the bridle and the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship, these illustrations are not original to James They were well-known and widely used throughout Greek and Hellenistic Jewish culture. James isn't uh, uh, claiming some revolutionary idea by using these images, but rather as an educated man, familiar with literature and culture of the day, he is using a common image to further communicate his point. So the bit in a horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship. How many of you have cruised? Anybody? Nobody. A few people. I worked for a cruise line for several years and have still never been on a cruise. I just was on a ship for 20 minutes picking people up 
off the ship and then I was on my way. So if you're planning a cruise, I'm open to invitations. I'll just throw that out there. It's unrelated. but Or maybe you haven't been on a cruise, but you've been on a, uh, some other seaworthy vessel. You know, there's quite a bit of difference between, say, a pontoon boat that can get you around on a lake and one of those huge vessels that is capable of weathering the storms or the waves of the ocean. So think about a huge ship, and then think about the tiny rudder in comparison. That flat vertical piece that is typically at the stern of the ship and determines and changes direction. A rudder doesn't make the ship move. That's the force of the wind in the sails or the fuel in the engine. But the rudder does determine the direction of that giant piece of equipment. So similarly, James says in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tiny tongue, like the rudder of a ship, like that little piece of metal in the mouth of a horse, the tiny tongue, too, boasts of great things, like determining the direction of our lives. Our speech is very, very powerful. But sometimes, I think because our speech is such a normal part of life, it seems so commonplace. We use it every day, a lot of times without much thought. I'm afraid that because of the common nature of our speech, at times we don't give it nearly the scrutiny it deserves and maybe requires. Because the move that James now makes is from the disproportionate power of the tongue, the fact that such a small member of the body can have such a great influence or effect. He moves from that neutral designation, the power of the tongue. So that could be good, that could be bad, maybe it's neither, maybe it is neutral. He moves from that neutral description to point now to the destructive power of the tongue. In the second half of verse 5, he says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So again, something really, really small impacting something really big. But this time, not in a neutral way and not in a positive way, but in a destructive manner. Now, we live in a part of the country where forest fires are not all that common. Although a few months ago, I think there was a rather large forest fire not too far east of here in the Mark Twain National Forest. But I think that fire only impacted about 500 acres. If you're from the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest, you probably understand that the threat of a forest fire can be life-changing. You take that threat seriously. As a product of the Midwest, I received my initial exposure to forest fires while I was working in Alaska, a land that is well acquainted with fires. It's not uncommon to see a half a million or more acres burn in a single season. And I remember on one occasion, I was scheduled to take the train from Fairbanks south to Denali, and there was a forest fire that was moving pretty quickly towards the railway. And our conductor had to decide if we were going to try to make it really quick before the fire reached the railway, or if we were going to hold the group back and figure out some other mode of transportation south. Well, I didn't realize at the time what 
how big of a deal it was, but he chose to try to beat the fire. And we did. I'm here. But we were moving. I mean, we were going fast. We weren't stopping for wildlife sightings like we typically did for our groups. And there were points in that journey where I could actually look to the side of the train and see the fire moving ever closer. But that experience made the threat of a forest fire a little more real. We made it safely, but they did stop rail service for about a week after our train passed through. It wasn't a joking matter. If you've ever been exposed to a forest fire, you understand the destructive power and reach. And granted, there can be environmental benefits that result from fires, but they still possess the power to wreak havoc. And yet they begin with a little flicker of a spark. And oftentimes they begin unintentionally as a result of a mistake or a lack of caution in considering wind while attempting to create a controlled fire for something like camping or property management or something like that. But, but the point James is making is that the tongue is not only powerful. Destin, I'm not going to mention anything about your experience with this, but I see you nervously laughing. The, the point that James is making the, the point that I'm making with Destin is, if it's windy, don't go near his property. The point that James is making is that the tongue is not only powerful, a lot of times its power is used either intentionally or unintentionally for destruction. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So what might be included in this world of unrighteousness that James speaks of? He doesn't list the evils associated with the tongue individually, but likely has in mind some of those common vices of the tongue outlined elsewhere in our scriptures. It's like gossip, slander, thoughtless chatter, arrogant boasting, dishonesty, and the like. And what ends up happening, he says, is that the tongue, when it goes unchecked, stains the entire body. It seems to be drawing from something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person because what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So the words of our mouths and what's in our heart, those things are connected. He goes on to say in verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There is a lot that we can control as the human race. Since we've tamed virtually every type of creature to some degree, 
Today, we continue to progress and achieve remarkable things in the field of science, and we're constantly making new discoveries that enable things today that even a decade ago seemed impossible. There is a lot that we can control as humans. We are capable of great things, and yet we can't control that small part of our bodies like the tongue. It is a restless evil, he says, full of deadly poison. That's a pretty dark description. The tongue cannot be tamed apart from the grace of God, and an untamed tongue, he says, is full of deadly poison. And we find this language elsewhere. We find it in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. We find it in the book of Proverbs. Psalm 140, the psalmist laments the fact that evil people are making their tongues as sharp as serpents. And then he says, under their lips is the poison of vipers. Proverbs 11.9, we see that poison produced by the tongue destroys the neighbor. Our speech is a serious, serious thing. And I don't think what James is arguing or even suggesting here is that because of the power of the tongue, we would be better off if we moved into solitude, where we have no interaction with other human beings and thus no opportunity to use our speech for evil. He's not arguing or suggesting that we keep perpetual silence, as I mentioned at the beginning. And I think this is an important point for us to keep in mind, that evil speech... Evil words that actually come from our mouths, that's not the only harmful noisiness in our being. Because even in our silence, our minds can be filled with evil thoughts about others. And that's just as destructive for us personally. I've been working through uh, St. Gregory the Great's famous work, the Book of Pastoral Rule, over throughout this spring. And I was struck by something he wrote. I actually had a conversation with Tim and Beth about this very thing, but something that he wrote in a section about silence and taciturnity or a reluctance or hesitancy to speak, and then contrasting that with excessive and harmful speech. He said this, for it ought to be insinuated to the over-silent that while they shun some vices unadvisedly, they are, without it being perceived, implicated in worse. For often, from bridling the tongue overmuch, they suffer from more grievous loquacity or talkativeness in the heart, so that thoughts seethe the more in the mind from being straightened by the violent guard of indiscreet silence. And then he goes on to say, at times, that vice of talkativeness or noisiness in the heart overflows in abundance because we think, well, we've been successful in restraining harmful and excessive speech, so we're good to go. But it seems possible that we could refuse to speak evil, to have a penchant for the taciturn, and yet have a noisy mind or a noisy spirit that entertains all kinds of evil thoughts about others without speaking them, of course, but they're still there. But James still is suggesting that there's something uniquely powerful about the words that end up coming out of our mouths. And we have the ability to choose, are we going to use our limited words 
to speak blessing? Or are we going to use our limited words to speak curses? Verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So again, the double-minded nature of humanity is exposed in the words that we speak. How can we bless the Lord, our Father, which for James signifies the purest form of our speech? How can we bless God and then turn around and curse our brothers or sisters with the same mouth? Yes, the question, can a fig tree produce olives? Of course not. That's an absurdity. Or like the lyrics from the children's song on Rain for Roots, your heart is where the words of your mouth grow. Your mouth is where the thoughts of your heart go. If you speak curses, it's revealing what's in your heart. This stings a little bit, right? I don't know about, maybe it's just me. But we can't bless God and then turn around and curse our neighbor. And we're not just talking about saying naughty words about our neighbors, but maybe it's something like hoping for their destruction or hoping that they are abandoned by God. How can you wish evil on somebody that is made in the image of God, James asks. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So as followers of Jesus, we are called into the, this very difficult task of training ourselves to speak blessing. To use our limited words wisely and to use them to the benefit of others. So maybe this would be a helpful exercise for us. Helpful, but maybe uncomfortable. But Think of the person, the last person that you had an evil thought about. Go ahead and think about them. Now share with your neighbor who that is. No, I'm joking. Don't, don't share who that is, especially if they're sitting right next to you. But think about that person, the last person you had a negative thought about or that you hoped something negative would happen for, you rejoiced when misfortune visit, visited them. Now, as you're thinking about that person, a specific person, remind yourself that that individual is made in the image of God. Those two things, the negative thoughts or the negative words you had for that person and the fact that they're made in the image of God, those two things can't really coexist. So maybe we should, as a matter of discipline, in our individual lives, practice blessing those people, those that you just thought about. We practice blessing those people. We practice praying for them and allowing Jesus to change our hearts and to change our dispositions towards them. 
that our speech might be uplifting because even those that curse us, even those that abuse us are made in the image of God. Thomas Merton aptly said that silence is the mother of speech. Silence is the mother of speech. In other words, as we recognize that our speech is powerful, that our small and even quiet words can have an enormous impact, we want to speak wisely. We want to speak blessing rather than curses. We want to be discerning in our speech and develop the ability to use our limited words to the benefit of others. Because the words that we speak are important. They matter. They have real consequences. And a lot of times those consequences are lasting. And we don't believe our words are important because we buy into some name it, claim it theological perspective where whatever we say, that's going to happen. So if we speak positive, good things are going to come. If we speak negative, bad will come. That's rather silly, I think. But our words do have power. Our words have real consequences in the real world. They affect other people. And the scars of a hurtful word might last a lifetime. Like the scars that are left behind in a forest after a severe fire. Sure, new vegetation grows, but there's always evidence of that fire left behind. Our words are only heard and they're only beneficial, I think, to some degree when they follow seasons or periods of silence where we develop the ability to have measured speech. Elsewhere, Merton said that if we have no silence, God is not heard in our music. If we don't have silence, God is not heard in our music. And we might also say that if we have no silence, our words aren't even heard or they're never going to be productive or beneficial. Because at some point, if we're constantly talking, people are going to begin tuning us out. I mean, when some, you probably have had this experience. When somebody with deliberate or restrained speech speaks, people perk up a little bit. Because it isn't just constant streams of purposeless chatter. So I think there's something that we can all be challenged by from this section today. The seventh century Christian bishop Isaac of Nineveh said that silence is the sacrament of the age to come. The sacrament of the age to come or the means of grace in the age to come. And maybe you're thinking, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to be the most grace-filled person in the age to come because I don't talk much. I don't have a difficult time controlling my tongue. In fact, it's difficult to get me to say anything in a group of people. And yet maybe your mind is filled with noise. And maybe your mind isn't always filled with thoughts that would be a blessing to others. Just because we don't speak it doesn't mean that our hearts aren't filled with the deadly poison that drips from the tongue. For the rest of us, Kevin, if you all want to come up, for the rest of us, those who at times have difficulty controlling our patterns of speech, 
This morning, we take some time as we respond to the Spirit of God and what he's speaking to us through our scriptures. And as we approach the table, we take some time this morning to once again repent of the sin that is related to our speech. And maybe we want to commit to seasons or periods of silence where we can learn how powerful the tongue is, where we can be reminded that what we say matters, it has real consequences. Seasons of silence where we learn that expressing our thoughts and feelings in the heat of the moment maybe isn't always necessary and maybe isn't always productive. And so today we ask Jesus simply, Jesus who shows us the better way of blessing and not cursing. Jesus who shows us the better way of praying and not attacking. We ask Jesus for his help. Jesus, help us. Help us. May our speech honor you. May our speech honor others. Help us. Would you stand this morning? We're going to approach the table. We rejoice in the gift of life that is represented in these elements. We respond to Christ's invitation. Believe he meets us in this meal. But by way of invitation to the table this morning, I'd invite you to join me in this confession of sin. It should be on the screen in just a moment. Would you join me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.